Acts 13, verse 1. Now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simon, who was called Niger, Lucas of Cyrene, Manian, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work which I have called them. Then, after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. So being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. When they arrived at Salmaeus, they proclaimed the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews, and they had John to assist with them. This has been the word of the Lord, Acts 13, 1 through 5. All right. Thank you, Joe, for mentioning that. We're so happy to have Ruth here, right? Woo! Ruth. Has she a month old yet? Not quite. Today. All right. And we just got back a couple hours ago now, hour, yeah, two hours ago from our first men's, is this first? I'm new, so, okay. A men's hiking and camping trip. It was really great time. Noah turned 19 on the trip, so he's 19 years old now. And Joe took such good care of us, you know. I mean, he, him and Sydney made food for us and planned our trip of where we would go. And he, he basically, for the weekend, traded one baby for seven and took care of the rest of us quite well, and we're super thankful for that. Had great conversations. Um, this week and next week, we are going to focus our minds and our hearts and our prayers on the sending of a new family. Because this is recorded and going to be online, we're not going to mention their name or where they're going during the sermon. Um, but it seemed to me that a send-off service next week is not sufficient to deal with the importance and the weight that a church has in sending a family to the other side of the world with this great message of the gospel. And so we're going to take today, um, next week we're going to talk about the sending church, which is who we are, sending them. This week we're going to talk about the sending God and the nature of God who sends us. A few words comes to my mind um, as they're preparing to leave and we're preparing to send them. One is that it's a privilege. Um, we didn't deserve the gospel, and now we are given this ministry of reconciliation that we can proclaim to the world, be reconciled to God because of what Christ has done for us. And this is a stupendous privilege that the Lord gives us. Um, a second word that comes to my mind is weight. It is a weighty thing to send a, ch a baby and two adults that we care for to the other side of the world and be spiritually responsible for them. It's a it's a heavy thing to think about standing between the living and the dead as we proclaim Christ to the world. It's not a, a light thing, but it's a joyful thing. That's the third word is joy. Because we are announcing hope to a world that it's without hope if they're without Christ and that our victory is secure in Christ. So as we go forward proclaiming the gospel to the world, we are proclaiming to them a victory that has already been won. Reminds me of the Roman announcers who would come back to the cities and announce the victory of their armies. And that's what we're doing is we're going forth to the world proclaiming the victory of Christ over 
sin, death, and hell. And so it's a joyful message that we get to carry. And today we're focusing on Acts 13. This week and next week, we're going to be in the same passage. We're going to look at it from two different angles. And I want you to look with me, if you have your Bibles, I want you to open it, please, to Acts chapter 13. And Acts chapter 13 is the model of ascending church. Um, It's actually the first sending church in the history of churches. And as long as churches have been sending missionaries, they've been looking back to Acts 13 for some guidance about why we do that, about what that means, and about um, how to do that. And so one of the things you're going to notice here is that they were fasting. Um, I've asked the family that we're sending about fasting. They asked us not to fast this week, but to fast on the week that they're going. So on the day that they're traveling and as they're landing there because of all the stresses and the the big things that they're going to be facing in that first week. So we're going to save that part of it till then. Um, But as we look at this church, it's the first Gentile church. So it's the first church that was not only Jewish. And the gospel had gone from Jerusalem north across the border to what is today present-day Turkey and and into the city of Antioch. Today it's called Antakya, and you can hear Arabic and Turkish spoken in the city of Antioch. And as they were there in Antioch, it was a very multicultural city. And we're going to see that the leadership of this church was multicultural from Africa and from the Middle East and from Europe, from both Greek and Roman and Jewish backgrounds. And this was the first multicultural church, the first Gentile church, and it was the example for us of ascending church. What we're going to notice, though, is that the impetus for missions is worship. One thing that struck me years ago, this phrase, that missions is the overflow of worship. So read with me, if you would, the first few verses, the first two verses, and then we're going to talk about, um, introduce the sermon for today. Now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, he's the African leader of the church, Lucius of Cyrene, Menaean, a a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, he was the Roman of this church, and Saul, who was the Greek and Jew of the church. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. So in verse 2, we get this idea that as they were worshiping the Lord, the Holy Spirit spoke to them, said, separate for me these two leaders from your church. You're going to send them to the work I've called them. And so missions is the overflow of worship. The sermon today, the one sentence that I'm going to present to you from this passage and then talk about for a few minutes is that the worship of ascending church will create, motivate, and sustain ascending church. I'm sorry, I, I, let, me, let me try that again. The worship of ascending God. So as we worship the ascending God, it will create, motivate, and sustain ascending church. So next week's sermon is going to be about the ascending church. Today we're going to focus on the character of God as a sender. So the very nature of our Father is that he sends in his nature. 
is not just something he does, it's not just an aspect of it right now, but it is in his very nature. And as we worship him, as we look toward him, as we learn of him, it creates in his people ascending nature. And then it motivates that nature enough that we can cross the globe with the gospel and it sustains it over years and years. We have Pastor Allen with us from Warrendale again and they've sent their, his daughter to the other side of the world, Indonesia, as they're sharing the gospel over there. And churches since, it seems, um, the last 500 years, there was a missionary revival among churches, but when did the missionary revival happen? There was hundreds of years where missions was not really a thing at all on the church's radar. It was an insular European sort of religion that was defending itself against encroachments from Africa and from the Middle East, and there was not a missionary heart until there was a recovery of worship, until there was a recovery of, a go of the gospel, which produced a recovery of our missionary call. One of my heroes, I'd love to encourage you to read about him, was a man named Count von Zinzendorf. Funny name, from East Germany, and I was able to visit this church in Hernhut, where he was this sort of prince in this region. He was, in, he was on a journey, he was a rich man, he was on a journey in Western Europe, and through the work of the Holy Spirit in his life, he saw a picture, one of the old uh, Middle Ages paintings of Christ on the cross, and he thought this thought, all of this you did for me. And this broke his heart and brought him to conversion. This picture of Christ on the cross and his knowledge of the scriptures, as he came to conversion, he went, or he came to Christ, went back to Hernhut, where he's from, and welcomed a group of refugees from Moravia, which is present-day uh, Czech Republic, who were, under, were being persecuted there, welcomed them to his region to live in peace, and they established this town called Hernhut. And in Hernhut, as Zinzendorf and these Moravian believers worshiped the Lord, the Holy Spirit worked in this community that they would send out the first two modern missionaries. And this was in the 1400s, so we're talking 600 years ago. And as they sent them out, their, their sort of sentence that motivated and sustained them was, may the Lamb of God receive the reward of his suffering. They sent two men to the, to the island of Jamaica, where they were serving, this was, they were serving among the slave population on the cane fields there. And eventually, because they couldn't reach them, these slaves were worked morning till night, seven days a week. They eventually sold themselves into slavery so they could work alongside of the slaves and reach them for Christ. What kind of thing could create, motivate, and sustain a mission like that Today I was at that church in Hernhut last year, and that church is continuing 600 years later to proclaim the gospel and continue to send out missionaries till this day. What could possibly create, motivate, and sustain a sending mission other than the worship, the sustained worship of ascending God? So we're going to look and focus our thoughts today on the sending nature of our God and their worship of him. Um, as they were worshiping, we see that God spoke to them and said, send, I want you to separate for me these two men. They're going to be sent. Now, this is kind of how 
as we face God, whoever your God is is who you end up reflecting to those around you and how you reflect the God that you really worship in your actions. Many people say they worship the God of the Bible, but their lives don't reflect at all the Jesus of the Bible that they say they worship. That shows us the reality is that they worship the God that really reflects how they act and what their priorities are. And I'll give you an illustration. Um, I was reading in my devotions this week in Psalm 146 and verse 5. And the first, uh, I'll read you a few verses and then show you how this works in life. Um, the psalm says, Blessed is he who, whose help is in the God of Jacob, whose hope is in the Lord his God, who made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, who keeps faith forever, who executes justice for the oppressed, who gives food to the hungry, the Lord sets the prisoners free. The Lord opens the eyes of the blind. The Lord lifts up those who are bowed down. The Lord loves the righteous. The Lord watches over the sojourners. He holds the widows and the fatherless. By the way of the wicked, he brings to ruin. I read that verse, or those verses. Minutes later, I get a text from Haley. She says, a refugee family needs to go to a doctor's appointment. Can you get them there? It's a bit of an emergency. I don't have anybody else, and they need to go in the next half hour. Now, I just read about the nature of my God who defends the orphans and the fatherless, who is there. It says the Lord watches over the sojourners, which is what this family was, sojourning in a land that is not their own. And so as I was reflecting on the nature of my God, I didn't read in here a command that I should go and do this, but I read about the nature of my God, heard about this very simple need, and I told her, I'm gonna move some plans around that I had, I'm gonna do that, why? Because as I was worshiping God, I end up reflecting and, yeah, I guess you could say reflecting into my life and into my actions, his nature. And so as this church was worshiping the Lord, they reflected him in the sending of these two missionaries. So, will we send this family with enthusiasm? Will we forget about them or will we hold them in constant prayer and memory? Will our young people and our church sense a call also to be sent to places far away from here? Will we send more families from this church? Well, it will all depend on the fervency of our worship of ascending God. Today we're gonna to focus on this aspect of God. Our human nature is inward. It's selfish, self-obsessed. Only what's in front of me can I think of as being important and only what suits me and my interests can I see as being of most value to me. And we end up being like a pool that is stagnant because we're only feeding into ourselves and we're not flowing the grace of God through us. But this church in Acts chapter 13, they were worshiping the Lord and they were fasting. This is a fervent sort of worship. So I wanna focus on two simple parts of the nature of God that they were worshiping. The unity of God, so his oneness, and the Trinitarian nature of God. And how that Trinitarian nature of God as the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit is reflected in his church. So first of all, God is one. The nature of the Lord that they were worshiping in this church is that he is one. 
The uniqueness of God implies that he alone is worthy of worship. This Lord that they were worshiping, they were not worshiping as one God among gods, they were worshiping him alone as creator of heaven and earth. We are put in right order with ourselves and others and only can be made right with God when we know God. God in his nature cares to make himself known. The, the nature of God being the creator of all peoples means that he desires that they know him as creator. The point of the Exodus, if you remember, is that all peoples may know that Jehovah alone is God. The commands, number one and two, you shall have no other gods before me, number one. Number two, you are to make no graven images of any gods, anything above or on earth. Our gods are commands about the unique oneness of God. The shamach of the Jews, as they, pray, as they repeat, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one God. Ilehukum Allah achid, they say in sort of Hebrew and Arabic mixture, is that God is one God. It is the nature of God that God cares that we know. He is incomparable and inscrutable. So what, are, what does that mean for his church as we understand the uniqueness and the oneness of our God? It means that if the peoples of the earth are to truly know God, then he is the one they must know. If they are to know their creator, then they must know only the God of the Bible. Also, it means that multitudes today are enjoying his benefits, but they don't know him. All other gods that all of religions of the earth worship, who are not the God that sent Jesus, his son, to die and rise again and reigns forever and is returning to take his people with him, any other God, even by the same name, is a false God. It is deceit from the wicked one. This means that the missionary effort must lovingly but boldly proclaim him to those in false religions following false gods. Remember that I did say lovingly and boldly proclaim the true God and his oneness. Also, if you look at, if you will, with me in verse 2, it says, while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting. Now, when, we, when they were saying the Lord, the early church understood this to mean the Lord Jesus Christ. Often the New Testament will put all three of those together, the two titles of Jesus and his name, the Lord Jesus the Christ. And as they were worshiping him, they were worshiping the risen Lord, the message through Acts. If you read every sermon in Acts from the very first one that Peter preached until the last one, the person and work, the resurrection of Jesus was the central focus of every single sermon. So as they were worshiping the Lord, it says here, they were worshiping the Son. They were worshiping the Lord Jesus Christ. The Holy Spirit in that moment spoke to them. And this is the second person of the Trinity. Jump down with me in verse 5. And, it, and after Paul and Barnabas were sent on their journey in verse 5, it says when they arrived, arrived at Salamis, Salamis? No, that's probably not right. Salamis. They proclaimed the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews. This is the Father. So the, the word of God belongs to the Father. And as, so you see a Trinitarian church and a Trinitarian missionary effort. So 
the Father, the Son, and the Spirit in their nature each are sending. He is ascending God. We're going to talk about each one of them. First of all, God the Father sends his word. This is the, we're going to start at verse 5 where they were proclaiming the word of God. So, John 1, chapter 1, um, that Luke read for us in the complimentary reading, it says, In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. If you have your Bible, you could look at that, but don't lose your place in Acts chapter 13. What he says here about the word was that, um, in verse 3, all things were made by, through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. So God the Father is the Word, right? The beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. The Word was God. So the nature of God is the Word, the spoken Word. Now, it is necessary that the Word go, that it move. The Word cannot exist without movement. So the nature of God, who is the Word, is that he sends his Word. And he is forever linked, linked to his word. His word, by his word, he created us. He created the world. His word exists only as it is in action, speaking, moving, being sent from the Father. When people deny that God speaks to us to reveal himself, they are denying something very fundamental about the nature of God, that he cares, that he always moves to reveal himself. In fact, God must reveal himself because it is his nature. Consider Adam and Eve with me. When they sinned and they walked away from God, did you ever ask, why did God come and seek them out in the garden? Well, really the best thing, why did he not just leave them to die in their sins? He had promised them, if you eat of the tree, you will die. So why did he not leave them to die? Why did he come looking for them? Because in his very nature, he, is, he sends, he goes, and he moves toward in love. We're going to talk about love as another aspect of the nature of God. Psalm 147.15 says, He sends out his command to the earth, his word runs swiftly. So the word of God that we are not just reading today, but also that we received in the bodily person of Jesus Christ is by nature ascending Word And as they went out, they proclaimed the word. So th what does this mean about our church and our missionary efforts? Well, it means that our missionary efforts, both here and globally, should be word-centered, proclamation-centered, while being accompanied with acts of compassion and reconciliation for our society. So issues like justice in our society and issues like the needs of those around us are, as we meet those and as we support those, support the centrality of the proclaimed word. If you look at verse 5, as they were sent out in Acts 13, they were sent out to proclaim the word. As they were going, they were healing, they were speaking words of reconciliation and hope, and they were meeting needs, but the centrality of their effort was the proclaimed word. That means our mission is faithful and effective only when the gospel is spoken. It does not mean you have to speak the gospel as the first thing you say to somebody. You don't have to meet them, say, hi, my name is Aaron, I'm a Christian, let me share the five simple, plan, five simple points of salvation with you. 
but it means that our, my mission to a person cannot only be in the compassion that I share with them or the kindness of, of a Christian that I share with them, but my mission that God has sent me on personally and us corporately as a church is only faithful and effective when we speak the good news of Jesus Christ, when we explain and proclaim the gospel. The second thing we saw that God the Father, I want you to think for a second about the nature of God the Son. It says they were worshiping the Lord. In John 1, 1, in John chapter 1, it says that the Word was with God. Okay, so we got that. God is the Word. The Word is sent. But then look what it says in verse 4. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. And then look at verse 5. The light shines in the darkness. This word shines, it involves movement, right? It's the action of the movement of the light. You probably won't be surprised that when I asked David Michael this morning, or last night around the campfire, how fast does light move? What is the speed of light? He immediately said 2.99 to the 10th power, I think, but we won't worry about those other numbers. What's that? <laughs> I actually had to look that up. And it moves at 671 million miles per hour. So light, we measure light by its movement. And we have this thing called the speed of light. God is light. So if God is light, 1 John says this, God is light and in him is no darkness. So if God is light, that means by his very nature he's moving. He's moving at a speed that we cannot comprehend. His nature is complete purity of movement. The light of God is synonymous with salvation. Because of his nature, he shines and he brings salvation. Consider with me Psalm 36, 9. The Lord is my light and my salvation. You see these words light and salvation together in the word. And so the nature of God is that he is light and that he sends. He is the word who became flesh and dwelt among us. And when that word became flesh, he was the light to all men. The darkness resisted him, Luke read for us earlier in verse 6, but the darkness could not overcome him. So what does this mean? What are some applications for our missionary effort? The purity of God must be evident in the lives of his followers. Jesus said to us, let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. We must not neglect the instruction and development of Christian character for the sake of mission. Now, we've been in, if you've been in church for a while, you have seen Christians that wink at the poor, ungodly character of Christian leaders because of their effectiveness in mission or their effectiveness as a preacher or a teacher. As a church, to be faithful, we have to not cover up or dismiss moral failures, darkness in the life of a preacher or a missionary that we're sending because of the potential of their effectiveness. Because God is light and he sends light where there is darkness, we have to, as a body, let the light of God shine on that. The converse of that is that we must not excuse sinful character in the life of anyone because of their effectiveness. So this is the nature of the God, the Lord that they were worshiping, is that he is light shining in darkness. 
Now imagine as a church, we are worshiping the God who is word, who moves, who is light, who shines, and then we don't take it anywhere. That would be completely uh, paradoxical. Is that the right word? That would be antithetical to what we say we believe. So the worship of ascending God creates and motivates and sustains the sending mission of the church as God the Father, who is the Word, as God the Son, who is the light, lastly, as God the Spirit, who is love. We read in our men's hiking trip, we memorized Romans 5.5, and at the end of Romans 5.5, it says, God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit, who has been given to us. Let me read that one more time and think about that. God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. So it is by God's Spirit who spoke to this church in Antioch that he gave, he poured into them love through his Spirit. So the nature of the Spirit of God is that he is everywhere. There is nowhere you can go, David the psalmist said. If I go to hell, he is there. If I rise to the heavens, he is there. If I make my bed in the deepest cave and in the darkest part of the sea, God is there. So the nature of the Spirit of God is that he is moving and he is everywhere. God is spirit, John, Jesus said to the woman at the well, and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. Previously to that, he said, and he is seeking those who will worship him in spirit. Anyone who does not love does not know God, 1 John 4, 8 says, because God is love. Consider the meaning of the word, the spirit of God. In Greek, it's paraclete. The name of the spirit means one who comes alongside. He is sent then to come alongside us. The nature of the spirit is that he is sent to us, to come alongside of us. What a wonderful thing that is for you and me. That he comes alongside us to comfort us. The comforter, the Spirit is called. That he comes alongside us to encourage us. That he comes alongside us to teach us and to guide us and to remind us of all that Jesus taught us. To lift up the Son. So the very existence of the nature of the Spirit of God is ascending nature. He moves and comes. Um, the spirit is the opposite of the body. It is not physically bound by space and time. He is then in all places. He is moving, and wherever we go with his message, he was there before us, and he was working before us. I've, I've done some reflecting on the motivation of the mission, probably a little bit late after I had been in North Africa for almost 10 years, I started to really reflect on what is the motivation of why we are going to the other side of the world or the other side of the street, the other side of our city, to our university campuses. Why do we do this? Is it for the people that we're going to or is it merely an obedience because we were given this command in Matthew chapter 28 when Jesus said, go into all the world and preach the gospel? I found an answer in this old Dutch reformed theologian named Bavink. I don't know if you've heard of him. He had a brother who was quite a famous writer as well. He says there are basically two categories of motivation for the Christian mission. Both of them are rooted in love. The first is for the love of God, 
that as we go, we are motivated because of what he has done for us and we love him in return. Because he has told us to do it, we do it out of pure love for him. The second is love for others. Because we have compassion on them as God has had compassion on us. And we don't want them to know a life and an eternity without God. We are sent and we go. So to know God and his love is by nature to be sent. Everyone who comes to Christ enlists under a missionary banner. I don't know if, if you've ever thought of this before, but the moment you received Jesus and his nature, you received him into yourself, and you were automatically enlisted as a, in, a, in a missionary effort. You were automatically came to be part of his kingdom, and in his kingdom he sends, because his nature is to send. And if he lives in you, and he lives in me, he sends us. So what are some of the applications of this? The nature of God's love places a must on us. Now, Paul said this. He says that it is required of me to be a witness to the Jews and the Gentiles. Woe to me if I do not do it. So there is a, a nature in the love of God that is given and poured out in our hearts that creates in us a holy must that says I should and I must and somehow though I also want to. I, I laugh about this with David Michael when I asked him if he would like to preach sometime. He said, I should. I was like, well, what does this mean? I should. Do you want to or not? And he said, I should. <laughs> He's saying, well, a big part of me doesn't want to, right? But, and I think I, I'm ex extrapolating a bit what you're saying. But the love of God poured into my heart gives me that must that I should proclaim in the gifts that he's given me, the good news of the gospel. Because God's love is unmerited, Paul said we have become debtors to both Jews and Greeks, to all of those who are far from the gospel. This nature of his love causes us to feel this debt since we received it without earning it toward those who also don't deserve it but have not yet received it. Secondly, we should express a kind of sacrificial love that most cultures and peoples of the world have never imagined possible. Now, if you've traveled much and you've been in a lot of other cultures in the world, you, I hope that you've seen two things. First of all, how similar all human beings are in the world. How common that our struggles and our nature is. And how much of a camaraderie between I love the word for human in Arabic. It's Beni Adam, the sons of Adam. How common the brothers of Adam are, no matter their tribe and tongue and language and color. But also, I would hope, if you've known the love of Christ, you've known how strange and foreign the love of God poured into the heart of a Christian is for cultures that are outside of Christ, that have not been impacted and transformed by the gospel of Christ. So we as a church should express a kind of a sacrificial love that most cultures and peoples of the world have never imagined possible. And I would even say that they may even think is foolish. And then we have to keep it up until they're convinced that it is real and not a show for some conversion that we're hoping for. What must we conclude then about the sending nature of God? We serve ascending God a God who is on the move, a God who takes initiative, moving toward his creatures in love. 
Our church is to reflect him and to do the same. We do it joyfully. We do it naturally. So this first church in Antioch, in Acts chapter 13, if we conclude by looking at it, we often look at the Bible and say, what is it telling me to do? All right, what should I do? We want to know what the actions are that we should do. In verse 2, it says they were worshiping the Lord and fasting. That's what they were doing. The mission happened as a natural result. The Holy Spirit spoke to them. So what's the second thing we should do? We should listen as the Holy Spirit speaks to our congregation and to individuals within our congregation, calling us to go whether that's to go to the other side of this globe where this couple are going. We should be attentive to the working of the Holy Spirit. How do I know, for example, that this family is being called by the Holy Spirit? Because the love of God poured out in their hearts caused an overflow of worship to them, and they say, we feel the Lord is moving us, and we want to go. So I take that as meaning the Holy Spirit is calling you thus calling all of our congregation to set you aside, to separate you, to make you a holy thing that we can pray for and send together. And then lastly, the thing to do is as we listen to the Holy Spirit as he guides our congregation, is to obey him. Some of you that are college and high school age, you have a whole life ahead of you. And you hear often People talk to you about what you're going to do with your life. And they're going to use all sorts of reasons and human wisdom about what you should do with your life. Many things that should be heeded and should be listened to. Worldly wisdom is not a wrong thing. It's a thing that God generally, graciously gives to all people. But you should especially put your ear to the word. And you should especially listen to the Holy Spirit. And you should especially reflect on the nature of God that lives in you, the love of God that was poured into your heart and the multitudes that have not yet heard of God and his saving grace and his love for them. God is still today calling people to go. That could be, like I've said many times, he may be calling people to go to other cultures and languages and places, but he is definitely calling us to cross boundaries with his good news, because he is ascending God, and he is in us. One way this week that I want to apply this, I'm going to send out in our CCC family WhatsApp group, and if you don't use WhatsApp, I want to encourage you to use WhatsApp so that you can hear the Holy Spirit this week, and uh, Luke. And um, we're, I'm going to send out a verse or two each day about the nature of our sending God that I want to reflect on. I don't want to think too much about, you know, the job that's to be done. But I want to focus, I want to turn our minds and our hearts and our spiritual eyes toward the Lord, toward his sending nature, and reflect on that. On Thursday, we're going to gather together in the GC. I want to encourage everybody to be there. We're going to get together with the family that we're sending, and we're going to ask them, how can we pray for you? Um, What's the team that you're going to work with so that we can pray for them? Who are the people you're going to serve so we can pray for them? What are the needs that you're feeling? What are the fears that you have so we can pray for that? And as we, as we go, we want to be faithful. We want to be faithful. To be faithful 
to our sending God, we need to send passionately. We can't just send flippantly. We can't send somebody to the other side of the world without feeling the weight and the privilege of that. We have to do it with the kind of enthusiasm that it deserves, that our gospel deserves, that our God deserves. So let's dedicate this week of sending in our hearts to sanctify it, facing our hearts toward our sending God and asking of him that he would take our minds off of our myopic world that focuses on ourselves and on our needs and on our bank accounts and on our, our things and that we would send worthy of our God who was sent to us. All right, let's pray. Father, we thank you. Without your sending nature, we would be without hope. We would be lost in this world. We would be far from you. Without your word having come to us, we would still be foolish. Without your light shining and dispelling our darkness, we would still be of all creatures most miserable and lost. And without the Spirit having been poured into our hearts and received your love, we would be full of hate and bitterness and animosity, and we would still be the enemies of God. Father, we, we, we need help to reflect and to worship. We need your Spirit to meet with us now as we think about how we've benefited from your sending nature. And Lord, we want you to then create in us ascending people. And we want you to motivate these dry motivations that we feel so encumbered and weighed down by the cares of this world. And we want the sustaining grace that we need to do it for years and decades and even if you tarry for hundreds of years, like the Moravians have done, that we may be faithful. The people, the children of God among, in this world. And so, Father, we pray that your nature would be clear to us this week and today as we sing our last song and worship of you and we we drink of the cup and we eat of the bread as we remember the body and blood of Christ. We ask that this would not be a ritual, but it would be a real imbibing of your very nature into ourselves that motivates us to go with your word. We pray these things in the gracious name of our Savior Jesus. Amen.